Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we're back with Peter Lehrman. Peter joined us for episode 17 back in 2019, and it was super well received. In this episode, we talk about buying and selling businesses. Peter is the founder and CEO of Axial, which is a tech platform uniting buyers and sellers of small and medium-sized enterprises. You'll hear that Peter and I had to break this episode into two parts. So in the first half, we started out talking about a macro view of the world of businesses and really the world of buying and selling businesses. An interesting thing to note is that there's an increasing number of professional buyers coming in to buy relatively small businesses, meaning businesses that are under that $5 million in revenue. In the second half of our discussion, we get more into details around the Q&A of the buying process, the ins and outs of how to buy and how to sell a company. Peter gives us a variety of tips that only a seasoned pro could know, so it's well worth listening to the end. As well, I encourage you to check out his website, Axial.net, as he and his team have produced a ton of valuable content and tools for buying or selling a business. So enjoy this episode. Peter, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be back, Corey. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad that we reconnected here because episode 17 was was the episode that you and I first connected on. It was dating in a world of private equity. And it was actually one of our, our, well, personally, one of my favorite episodes. I learned a ton, believe it or not. That was a couple of years ago. We've now been through a pandemic and a lot has changed. So let's let's dive into our conversation. But the best place to start is with a bit of background in yourself and talking about Axios. So I'm going to hand it over to you for an intro, if you don't mind. For sure. So a quick introduction on me. I started Axial about 11 years ago after graduate school. Went to graduate school, got an MBA, and started Axial about a year later. Prior to business school, I worked for another startup company that was actually co-founded by my brother Thomas and his partner Mark Gerson. company goes by the name GLG. And I was there for about six years. GLG was a is a technology company that uh, makes it really easy for investors to speak with experts as they're doing due diligence on investments in public companies, private companies. It's been a fabulous success of a business. And I was lucky enough to be the younger brother to my brother, Thomas, and uh, he and his team gave me an opportunity to join the company right out of college. I was one of their first employees and I tried to prove myself over and above being my, you know, younger brother, my older brother's uh, younger brother and spent six years there, learned a lot about how investors make decisions, uh, the kind of information that they need to make decisions, how they think about making decisions, and uh, then went off to graduate school. Uh, Axial got started after graduate school. The quick elevator pitch on Axial, uh, we operate a software platform that acts as a matchmaker matchmaker between people that are buying and selling small and medium-sized businesses in North America. Small and medium-sized, meaning 
businesses usually with somewhere between on the low end, two to $3 million in, in value on the high end, usually not much more than a hundred million in value. Our sweet spot is sort of 10 to $50 million businesses, but that's sort of the min and the max. And Axial acts as a digital matchmaker connecting the buyers and the sellers. We use a lot of software and a lot of data and a lot of information that we gather from both buyers and sellers. And then we create a permission-based environment where the sellers and the buyers get to confidentially opt in to private conversations with one another and begin the dialogue around an M&A transaction. And we have a number of other tools that sort of support the process, digital NDAs, digital execution and signature of NDAs, uh, the ability to share you know, mission-critical transaction documents and other documents that are used to uh, assess opportunities. But the core platform is really uh, all about the matchmaking and the introductions between buyers and sellers and the confidential double opt-in nature of, of how to do it so that both sides feel comfortable kicking off the dialogue. And I've been doing that for about 11 years. So seen a lot, run the business with primarily two different business models uh, over that period, and really excited actually about the opportunity for the business in a post-COVID world, uh, which I'm yeah. sure we'll get into. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do want to get into that because you know, a, a lot has changed. And uh, so let's start off a bit more though, and let's get a little bit more into when you talk about a business from two to 3 million in value to, you know, under a hundred million, what do those businesses look like? And what do the sellers look like? And what are the, what do the buyers look like? Yeah. So, you know, within that range, there is a set of sort of subcategories and submarkets within that range. You know, there is a growing number of of buyers of the sort of sub five, sub $10 million business that really represents a really interesting category of business buyer. They're not in many cases, private equity buyers. They're not quote unquote, professional buyers of businesses. They're not necessarily large corporations making small tuck in acquisitions. A lot of the businesses that are being bought that are worth somewhere between three and $10 million are being bought by entrepreneurs who are pursuing an entrepreneurial career through the acquisition of businesses. And they are either buying one business at a time and then operating that business uh, as the CEO or as the chairman, or they are buying a few businesses for their own account and then operating in either an operating executive or maybe a chairman capacity across a number of those businesses. Uh, and so that class of buyers or category of buyers is really interesting. It can be a mix of, you know, pretty veteran P&L GM operators who have left Fortune 2000 companies as general managers or P&L operators to go and buy and operate a business or a set of businesses in their hometown or in their region. It can be a search fund operator, a search fund operator historically has been a young professional coming out of a business school who raises some money to go and search for a business and, and buy a business and then run that business. And there's a, a growing category of what are called search fund buyers of small businesses. And then there definitely are the usual suspects in the sub $10 million category. There are private equity firms buying businesses in that category. They tend to consider that category micro PE, micro private equity. In some cases, they're not buying those businesses as a platform to put initial capital in. They're buying those businesses, but they already own a business that's in that sector and they're making a, an acquisition uh, through a, a corporation that they already own. And then there are also some really large shareholder-owned corporations that 
have developed really, really productive M&A machines. In fact, you actually interviewed, I think his name was John Willette a few yeah, weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, of course. I don't know you. Do you know John? Well, no, I just was uh, listening to the show as, as I was getting ready, uh, listening to the show in the shower this morning. So so that I had a little bit of context for, you know, who you guys had been interviewing over the last few months here. And, you know, well, he Peter, was not, not to not to do business on the podcast, but I definitely want to introduce you to John and his team. Yeah, that would so, be great. I mean, he he clearly built a real repeatable M&A process for that insurance brokerage company. Right. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of times you know, you can build a lot of shareholder value uh, buying small businesses, even if you're a big business and uh, it doesn't have to be the big transformational Facebook, Instagram type of acquisitions in order for you to, to create a lot of value. And people yeah. like John are sort of proof of that. So there's well, a- that's fun, man. I'm just on a side. I'm, I will introduce you to John and also to Adam Joyce and the team there. That'd be um, great. Phenomenal guys and a great story. And so I'm really happy you dived in there, but back, back to it. Yeah. So there's these, yeah, please continue. So, yeah, so that, that's, you know, what, what I just sort of laid out is sort of like, I guess the sort of three, I, I'd say, you know, somewhat major categories of buyer type that you find buying sub $10 million businesses, roughly speaking, right? I think once you're buying businesses that are sort of $15, $20 million in value and higher, it tends to skew towards, you know, a slightly more, quote unquote, again, professional buyer set. It's either committed capital, private equity firms. It might be single family offices, which are investing capital on behalf of a single family that has accumulated you know, generational wealth and is looking to preserve and grow that wealth through the acquisition and typically the long-term holding of, of small and mid-sized businesses. And then you know, once you're sort of north of $50 million, you know, you're really mostly in the world of sort of professional private equity and, and corporate M&A. I mean, there are exceptions to all of, you know, all of these things that I'm saying. So they're not, you know, they're not iron laws, but there's a really interesting diversity of buyers in the sort of sub 10, sub $15 million world. As you sort of move north of 20 and certainly north of 50, I think the diversity remains in terms of the breadth of the buyers, but the types of buyers that are, you know, going to be, you know, buying $50 million, $100 million businesses, those buyers tend to be you know, really full-time professional buyers of businesses making acquisitions on behalf of a corporation or, you know, professional dedicated private equity operators, you know, whose job is to raise capital, buy businesses, and, you know, ultimately sell those businesses for substantially more than they bought them for. Yeah. Now, I really want to talk valuations and especially in this kind of smaller, lower market segment. But before that, what are some of the businesses that are being sold and, and what do those sellers look like? Is it, um, you know, probably typically a, a mom and pop and have built from the ground up. Can you give us more color on, on the types of businesses and the types of sellers that are out there? Yeah. So we at Axial have sort of developed category focus in four primary areas of sort of the broader economy. Those four industry categories are broad and broadly defined, but I'll just lay them out quickly. One is the healthcare industry. The second is the technology, software, and IT services category. Uh, the third is uh, consumer products and consumer services. And then the fourth is a somewhat of a catch-all, but sort of the business services uh, sort of category, which is you know, a combination of industrial companies, manufacturing companies, and then sort of B2B services businesses uh, could be, you know, or in some cases, you know, uh, B2C sort of home services businesses. So, 
Just yesterday, um, to just give you some cases in point, uh, we had two transactions closed just in the last couple of days here. One of those businesses was an e-commerce business. It's a subscription e-commerce business. They sell subscription-based. I don't know if you're familiar with the company called BarkBox, but BarkBox is like a pet subscription e-commerce business. Right. I think it's New York. Uh, I don't know if it's New York based or certainly here in the U.S. And this was a much smaller business focused actually on the cat category. So it was a cat cat subscription e-commerce business. The business was bought for about eight million dollars, and you know there was a little bit of um, earnout and some other structure in the transaction, so that if the business continues to perform well, there's there's more upside for both the the new buyer as well as for the seller who who has created that business. The second business that recently uh, closed, it's actually a, a more of a down the middle software vertical, you know, sort of vertically specific software as a service business selling into the government category uh, and providing uh, software to government contractors and firms that provide services to the government software that focuses on estimation, procurement, project management, just tools and, and software-based solutions that help government contractors and government services organizations interact with the different government agencies and the government branches with, with more productivity and more success. That business was sold for a little more than $20 million. So those are just two, just right off the top of my head, that happened to close in the technology sector. In the you know, B2B and sort of industrial category, there's a lot of activity and a lot of you know, end markets and end categories. There's been a tremendous amount of both institutional as well as sort of SMB buyer interest in HVAC businesses, uh, heating, ventilating, air conditioning businesses. There is a lot of fragmentation in that market. There are a lot of businesses that have interesting, you know, customer footprints, you know, selling to commercial customers, residential customers, industrial customers. And there has been a pretty significant head of steam in terms of consolidation and, and just sort of large-scale M&A roll-up activity in, in the HVAC category. Some of it being done by shareholder-owned corporations, some of it being done by you know by private equity firms that you know are building pretty significant businesses you know in that category and then i'll stop after this one but there really are so many different categories where m a activity is is happening and is always happening in the small business economy another area that's been sort of increasingly sort of well well published is businesses that are in water and sort of water treatment or plumbing and sort of plumbing services so there's a lot of craft and technical expertise associated with water and the management of water into and out of buildings, whether it's homes or whether it's offices. And while a lot of uh, plumbing businesses are small and considered subscale, in many ways, they're really attractive, really protected businesses. And so there is a, uh, there are a series of, of pretty active buyers that are out there, you know, buying really all kinds of home and industrial and commercial services businesses that have expertise managing, you know, the the inputs and the outputs uh, of water in and out of buildings and, and homes. A lot of activity there. That is really interesting. And for me, seeing more and more activity move down market into smaller and smaller um, business acquisitions, and, and especially since you've now moved your business and focusing on there, clearly there's something happening there. 
when we talked last, and I've heard this from a number of other guests, though, is that in the private equity world, valuations, especially in that kind of mid-market area, are so frothy. They're just, you know, it's so competitive to be, as a private equity manager, to be placing money and, and acquiring companies that it's becoming increasingly difficult. Is that the same way in this kind of lower or even, you know, kind of, I, 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 do you call it like super small <laughs> private equity yeah. world or this real low end of the market? Well, it's all relative for sure. You know, it's, it, you know, it, it's not like the answer is that there is a lot of activity in the small business M&A economy. There are two reasons for minimally, I'd say two, maybe three big reasons for that. One is a tremendous number of small business entrepreneurs are you know in the latter half of their life and thinking about you know retiring or, or or some other version of how to spend you know the the last 20 30 years of their life so there's a big just demographic tailwind around small business ownership and a lot of small business owners wanting to to, to sell the the most significant asset in their life which is their business a second reason I think is there's been a significant buildup post covid of, of people that were scared to death, you know, running their businesses during COVID, maybe almost lost their business, were very exhausted by surviving COVID and have just said, you know what, like, I'm going to count my my lucky stars that we're still alive and well. And, you know, I'm going to look to have an outside partner sort of take over this business. So I think there's, there's, there's pent up demand that's releasing itself, you know, into the marketplace on the heels of COVID in a somewhat more normalized economic environment. You know, it's definitely not normal you know, as far as pre-COVID goes, but I think people feel more comfortable selling businesses today than they did this time a year ago. And so I think there's a big buildup of, of activity there. Interesting. And then there's, you know, there's just, there's no interest rate in the world, you know, and there hasn't been any interest rate in the world for a long time. And so all of the world's savers, all of the world's depository, you know, you know, anybody who holds capital in the world, you know, broadly defined governments, families, uh, endowments, insurance companies, there's, there is no interest rate in the world right now, right? And so what that does is put a huge amount of pressure on all of the owners of capital in the world to find a place to put their money. Because if they don't, if they just put their money in, you know, under their mattress, there's no yield on that, right? There's no savings rate. There's no, there's no interest to just hold cash. Um, and so as a result, there's a lot of big secular tailwinds, and this has been going on for at least 10 years, but it's really gotten radical in the last five years to put capital into some of the more attractive, you know, return bearing securities, you know, either private loans or private equity, because you, you know, if you go down to the bank, you don't get 5% on your money anymore. You, you know, you get 25 basis points. And so all of that is, is leading to a lot of activity in private equity and private credit. And it, you know, as that capital comes in, you know, the capital can come in much more quickly than new businesses can be formed and built. So the supply of businesses is growing substantially more slowly than the supply of money. And that just creates this, you know, upward pressure on price. That doesn't mean that, you know, a small HVAC business is selling for the multiples that big public companies are selling for, or that big private companies are selling for. The smaller the business, typically the smaller the multiple. Just when the business is smaller, it has less scale. 
it has more risk of not surviving. And, and that gets ultimately, you know, factored into to valuation among a whole host of other considerations. But I think a lot of people would, you know, who have been buying small businesses for five, 10, 15 years would say, this is the priciest environment that they have, have ever seen yet. Yeah. Now walk me through buying a small business. If I was one of these the fund and find kind of managers or an entrepreneur mm-hmm. looking to acquire and consolidate some some companies, perhaps and in the world at HVAC as an example. What's the process and where have you seen some of these entrepreneurs be very successful and what did that program look like? Well, I would say that there's there's a couple of different ways to answer the question. I mean, a couple of ways to answer the question, what is the process is there's sort of two one way to think about it is that there is there are businesses that are explicitly for sale and there are businesses that are not explicitly for sale but where a buyer can maybe precipitate or create a transaction through elbow grease and 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 skill right and maybe that's one way to sort of think about the two big buckets of processes when a business is explicitly for sale, you can think of that the same way as like a house being for sale, you know, on the internet, on Zillow or some other real estate, you know, uh, you know, local or, or national or global site, right? The seller has decided to sell the house or the seller has decided to sell the business and they are engaging in a set of activities to make that known to the market. Sometimes they make that known to a very small part of the market. They interact in a very private, very confidential, very cagey way with the market. Sometimes they engage the market themselves. And in many cases, they hire a broker or an intermediary to represent them in order to both handle some of the particulars of getting a transaction done, of which there are many, as well as also to preserve their, their freedom to run the business. And also to keep their identity anonymous until you know until the buyers are sort of more more carefully vetted. So you can break the process down into sort of is the business actively being sold uh, in some way or another by the seller, by himself or herself, or through an intermediary, or is the business kind of passively willing to entertain dialogue? And as a buyer of businesses, you can pursue and cultivate a pipeline of opportunities in either one of those buckets, right? You can build a pipeline of you know, acquisition opportunities by engaging with tens or dozens or hundreds of intermediaries and brokers who are constantly selling different businesses. You can also try to go directly to entrepreneurs and say, I'd love to buy your business. Here's why I'm interested in buying it. Here's who I am. Obviously, the yield is going to be very different when you're going to a business that's actively for sale and being professionally sold versus when you're reaching out to business owners who are, you know, maybe willing to entertain dialogue, but, you know, don't have a, you know, a burning timeline to, to sell their business. And there's, there's pros and cons to the, to the different processes. Uh, but I'd say that's kind of one way to sort of characterize the, the big buckets of the process. As far as the professional sale process, where there's an intermediary involved or where the, you know, the business owner has decided to sort of explicitly engage with the market, you know, usually there is a couple of standards associated with that process. The first is that usually there's some simple one to three page, just executive summary of the business. Very often that summary is anonymous. It doesn't disclose the identity of the business. 
And that information is shared with potential buyers through any variety of channels and means. And then if the buyer is interested in sort of engaging more deeply, typically some sort of confidentiality agreement or non-disclosure agreement is negotiated and executed, at which point identity of the seller is often revealed. And usually more deep, more fulsome information on the business is shared and and presented with uh, the buyers that have been selected. And, you know, then that process, you know, it's a, it's a courtship, right? You know, and it can go, you know, it can take three months to ultimately, you know, three, four months for the seller to ultimately determine which buyers are serious and, you know, which buyers ultimately submit a bid by the business. And then ultimately, usually the way that the process goes from there is one of those buyers is selected to the extent that there are any buyers. The buyer is selected based upon uh, a written offer, which is often referred to as a letter of intent. That offer is non-binding. In other words, if the buyer discovers details about the business, when they really do a lot of the scrutinizing of the company's books and records, they can walk away from the transaction. But provided that they don't find anything that's alarming or that is out of step with what the seller has represented, the buyer is going to proceed to buy the buy the business and, and close the transaction. So soup to nuts, you know, those transactions can take somewhere between on the very low end, 60 days from start to finish. I mean, that's an unbelievably successful rate to more typically sort of six to nine months. And sometimes as long as, you know, 12 months, you know, sort of start to finish from yeah. formally engaging the market. When you're engaging with a business owner directly and you're in that other category, you know, in some ways, all bets are off, right? Because that business owner has not affirmatively indicated that they want to sell the business. It's not clear whether they even have the financial information and the business information on their business in a readily ascertainable state. They may be hesitant to share that information. So I have seen those kinds of transactions you know, happen in short order. And I've also seen those transactions happen you know, over like a multi-year period, you know, where the the buyer reaches out, they go and hop on a plane, they go and, you know, invest in a relationship with the seller. The seller says, nice to meet you. And I've decided I don't want to sell it right now. Why don't we stay in touch? A year goes by, two years goes by, something happens. And then the seller all of a sudden says, hey, you know, why don't you come back? Let's talk again. So those can be huge, very long duration uh, acquisition cycles. Um, or they can be, you know, shorter. It, it's really there's so much variability in that part of the market uh, for for obvious reasons. Just because the the seller hasn't really declared themselves a seller, they're just sort of, you know, entertaining dialogue, and yeah. they they can change their minds on a whim. No, so it, it really changes things when you're when you're in that bucket. There's Having a said that, of, there's some really interesting there's really interesting deals that happen that way, you know. So it's not like it's worse. It's just it's a it's a lower probability, lower visibility process. But there are some incredibly successful transactions that get created through the grit and the elbow grease and you know the the charisma of the buyer to to really persuade the business owner to to do a deal. There's a lot of success that can be created that way. I I want to I want to dig in on that. So. Uh, but also a question that came to mind is is valuation metrics and how how these companies you know rules of thumb when you're looking at valuing a company you know multiple on revenue or whatever may that be but then also and I'm just looking at time I can't believe we're already nearing the end of the hour if you can <laughs> answer the maybe something the rule of thumb around valuation metrics followed by 
what are the characteristics of a successful deal for buyer and seller? Because, I mean, even things like a performance earnout can be a deal maker or a deal breaker. So perhaps you can give us a little bit of color on that. And then unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap up. Sure. Yeah. I mean, again, everything I'm saying, I'm just trying to sort of like generally say what I think is roughly correct. There's always exceptions to, to, to all of this, but you know, there's largely two ways in which businesses tend to be valued from a sort of analytical and sort of valuation perspective. One is valuing businesses as a multiple of their profits, either their pre-tax income, or in some cases as a multiple of EBITDA or some other measure of a business's sort of profitability. And then the other typical evaluation, which is more often used for businesses that are growing faster and that are not generating profits yet, is to value businesses based upon a a multiple of the revenues that the business is generating. So when a business is generating no profits, you know, if that business is growing very slowly and is not generating any profits, that's not a particularly attractive business. But if a business is growing quite fast, 20, 30, 40, up to, you know, triple digit percentage rates of growth, investors are comfortable valuing those businesses as a multiple of, of revenue because the business isn't yet generating profits. And obviously the the investor is is making a, a judgment that the business is not making profits today because it is going to be making significantly outsized profits at some point in the more, you know, the, the more distant future. So even though businesses are valued often either as a function of current or historical profits or revenue, the end of the day, I think investors are ultimately trying to forecast profits in the future and value businesses off of profits. So that's those are the two, you know, sort of rough, you know, sort of drivers of valuation for businesses, regardless of their size and their scale. And I'd say the the only other, you know, sort of alternative consideration for valuation is looking at what other businesses that are similar have have sold for, right? So if a business if there are a bunch of HVAC businesses and they all kind of roughly look the same and act the same and have generally similar sort of customer profiles and growth rates, well, maybe another way to sort of value the business that you're considering buying is based upon what another business that was similar to that sold for. And, you know, again, similar to sort of how houses get sold. If, you know, the house down the block gets sold for X and you're in the same zip code and the same schools and this, that, and the other thing, then, you know, that probably sort of sets a little bit of the min-max range for for your house, unless there's something radically different between the two houses. So those are the gotcha. like the nuts and bolts of valuation. There's so much more under the hood there, but you know that's you know in a time-constrained environment like this, that's that's the quick answer. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking, Peter. Just as a final question. Perhaps for those who are listening and, and, and want to wrap up at this point, though, and let's wrap our, our first part of this up, though, is with Axial and the work you do and the conversation we've had this far, how is some of this applied in, in, in detail when using the Axial platform? So the Axial platform is designed to support the introduction uh, the confidential introduction between a, a buyer and a seller. And so what, what typically happens on Axial is the buyers and the sellers arrive on the software platform in their own respective sort of areas, and they're able to sort of privately and confidentially 
characterize what it is that they're looking to do via the platform. Sellers typically are looking to sell a business or multiple businesses, and buyers are typically looking to buy a business or multiple businesses of various types. And both sides are essentially contributing information and data into the platform about the kinds of transactions that they're looking to do. And they're at the core of Axial is a matching system that is doing its dead level best. It's all software based to try and identify the most likely matches for buyers among sellers and the most likely set of matches among sellers for for buyers. And then there's a double opt-in system that allows the buyer and the seller to sort of grant permission to one another to engage in dialogue. And that makes sure that both sides are comfortable uh, proceeding before any dialogue or any introduction is made. And then when the introduction is made, in addition to making the introduction, a whole bunch of information is presented to the buyer about the seller and to the, you know, to the seller about the buyer. So we present who the buyer is, their mm-hmm. identity, the kinds of transactions they're looking to do, the history of transactions that they've completed. We try to provide reputation data on the buyer. So are they responsive? Do they have positive reviews from other sellers or other buyers on the platform? If you're a seller, we provide information on the business, the profitability, the financials of the business. So we're trying to both make the introduction, but also incorporate a lot of the critical initial decision-making information that both sides need in order to determine whether or not they want to spend time with one another. In this world, you have in in this sort of world of M&A, right? The seller is ultimately going to probably need to speak with many, many, many buyers before arriving at a conclusion as to which is a buyer who they would like to partner with. And and the same thing goes for buyers. Buyers will meet with many, 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 many sellers before they say, this is a business that I'm excited about. This is a business that I feel like I can acquire and add value to, and I can do it at a reasonable valuation. So sellers are meeting with lots of buyers. Buyers are meeting with lots of sellers. And so what we're trying to do at Axial is just make sure that the use of time for the seller is a good use of time in terms of who they're being introduced to and obviously vice versa for the buyers. And when we're at our best, the platform is is creating a huge amount of time savings and really connecting the right buyers to the right sellers at the right points of time. And when we miss the mark and when the software is, is not working well enough or it doesn't have sufficient data, maybe we're you know not making the best you know introductions that we possibly could. But that's kind of what we obsess over at Axial is maximizing the quality of the introductions between buyers and sellers and giving them the the tools to control who they who they speak with and when. I love it. And what I want to do in, in our, our next part of this episode is go into once that introduction's made, then what? And we can start talking about parameters of a good deal, uh, of of negotiation, of structuring, of earnouts, everything that would go on between a buyer and a seller to consummate a deal that is going to be a good deal. So I look forward to that conversation. We're back with Peter Lehrman. We had to take a quick break there as in we're editing out a few days of in between from our episode. But Peter, welcome back. And let's get back into our conversation where we left off. We talked high level about the world of private equity, how you're seeing more and more deals that are focused on smaller value opportunities and more professional buyers coming into the space. And we also talked about how Axial and your experience focuses in on this. Where I want to go now, though, is talking about the acquisition 
process, the the buying and selling. So if I was a, a small business buyer, why don't we fire some questions and you can answer those? How's that sound? That sounds great. And it's great to be back. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. First two-part series that we're doing back to back. So so let's let's get into this then. When we're talking about buying a company, there's got to be a project plan. So can you walk us through what the buying and selling process looks like? What are the first steps and what step comes after that? And, and what does a really good acquisition or an, a sale look like? Yeah, sure. So most people are familiar with buying and selling stocks, at least conceptually, right? And you can buy stocks by logging into an online you know, trading brokerage account and you can look up a company by ticker and you can get a bunch of information on the business. You can set up some screens that say, I only want to see, you know, tech companies with a market cap less, you know, there's, there's all these automated products on the internet that allow you to sort of look at the initial list of stocks or bonds or what have you that you might want to buy. The way that a small business gets bought, that process starts out really totally differently. You have to be able to access the business and ultimately develop a access and an introduction point to the owner of that business. And so the you know the top of the funnel is typically an introduction to the business owner or an introduction to a broker who is representing the business that's for sale. And the more of these introductions that you can get, the more ideas and opportunities you will have to evaluate. So the, the, the process starts with, in one way or another, being introduced to an opportunity. You can use platforms like Axial to be introduced to opportunities. You can use your own personal network. You can use any combination you want. You can look for business brokers, meet them, you know, chase them down, ask them to sell, you know, to share, share their opportunities with you. But whenever you're continu- you know, considering the purchase of a small business, it starts with an introduction either to the owner of the business or some authorized intermediary who is you know, at liberty to represent the business owner. That's where it starts. And you can get a lot of information or you know, very little information out of that introduction. Typically, in a structured sale of a business, a small business, there is a very brief, typically anonymous one-page, two-page, three-page sort of summary of the business opportunity Sometimes it's anonymous. Sometimes it's not. It all depends on how it's getting structured. Um, But that's where the process starts. If you're interested in learning more, you sign an NDA, typically, that indicates that you will not use the confidential information for any purpose really other than the purpose of of buying the business and, and determining whether or not you want to buy the business. And once you've signed that NDA, you're able to get access to a whole bunch more information, some of which might already be ready and some of which might be sort of getting pulled together on the fly as you request it. And so you go through this process of having, you know, like a a thumbnail sketch of the business to then diving in more deeply into a certain amount of material, PowerPoint decks, written memorandums, financial models, financial statements that are being pulled together for you and for other potential buyers, either by the business owner herself or by the business owner's uh, hired intermediary, uh, which can be a business broker, an investment banker, could be a CPA or uh, you know a lawyer. There's a lot of people that sort of can get involved in the representation of a business that's for sale. Now, I know you're going to continue going because there's more here, but I got a couple of questions that I want to weave in. Okay. Um, the first is that when you're working with a business broker and you reach out to one, 
they're engaged by the seller as an example, or if you have somebody representing you, who do you trust and how do you find those levels of trust when it comes to bringing the information to you so you don't end up at the, the end of a sale looking and saying, well, I have a lawsuit on my hands now because of a material breach or something wasn't disclosed, but they've they've covered it up such that I don't have any recourse. Yeah. What kind of fail-safes can be put in and, and who can you trust in, in this process? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how many people, you know, you can trust. That's a hard thing to to answer. Trust is typically earned over time, but, you know, reputation is a shortcut to trust and reputation typically leads to referrals. So if you have other people who, you know, who are buying businesses or selling businesses and you think highly of them and they provide referrals, you know, that can be a little bit of a shortcut to trust. But I think that Ultimately, if you're going to be buying uh, businesses, you know you need to be able to ultimately develop your own perspectives on, you know, on the information that's being presented to you. I don't think that you're in a position to look. There are huge public companies that are frauds, like Enron, right? And so, small, tiny businesses that have none of the rigor of the SEC and going public and all the hoops that you have to jump through to be a big public company. No small company has any of those requirements. So there's going to be a lot of information that you know either might be incorrect, and that's not necessarily nefarious. It's just not doesn't exist, or it's incorrect, or it's out of date. So as a buyer, you go through a subsequent process, you know, sort of after meeting the business through whatever introduction and prior to buying the business, you're going through, you know, the biggest part of the process is the due diligence process. Due diligence refers to the set of activities that a buyer is going to carry out that gives them the ability to confirm or deny that all of the information on a business that has been represented is in fact true, or that the representations have been you know, appropriately modified upon further analysis. So a business owner says, my business has 5 million in sales. In the due diligence process, you get to determine whether that's true. 5 million over the last one year, two years, 10 years, over the last 14 months, you, you know, how much profit, you know, how are they calculating that revenue? Are they recognizing it correctly? You go through a due diligence process. Due diligence requires a huge amount of work, a huge amount of time by a buyer, and usually buyers hire professionals to help them complete different modules of due diligence so that they can ultimately determine whether or not the information that's being presented on a business is in fact true or you know almost perfectly true. So with this, we, we've gone from using a broker or a, or a platform like Axial to identify targets we want to go after. We now okay. say, hey, I'm interested in this business, so sign me up and I get the, the teaser sheet, that uh, one to three page summary of the, the company that is yep. for sale, potentially anonymous or not. And then if I'm going to go express interest, I say, yes, I'm ready for this. So I sign an NDA, of which I got another question for that. Once signing the NDA and you move into the due diligence process, with where do you put the term sheet in place with the price? Does the price come first, then due diligence, or due diligence and then price? Yeah. So the answer is that there's a certain amount of diligence that needs to be done by the buyer prior to submitting a bid on the business. 
And that bid, it has to be somewhat informed, right? But typically what a buyer will do is they'll say, listen, you said your business has 5 million in sales and a million dollars of pre-tax profit. I'm going to submit a bid based upon the information that you've given me. I'm going to submit the bid under the assumption that that information is all correct and true. So this bid is based upon an assumption that what you have represented and presented so far is true. Mm. I will need to go through a due diligence period to confirm that all of that and anything else that I find important and material to the purchase of this business are, are also true. I need to make sure that you've paid your taxes. I need to make sure that you're not employing illegal labor. I need to make sure that you don't have lawsuits on the business that have not been disclosed. There's a whole checklist of things that fall within due diligence, but I'm not going to check all of those things out now. I'm just going to say, here's my bid. And it assumes that, you know, the core representations that you're making are true. And in the the event that they're not true, that obviously will affect whether or not I'm interested in continuing to buy this business and the terms and the price upon which I might be interested in buying this business. So if I all of a sudden find out that it's a $5 million revenue business since inception versus over the last 12 months, that's a really big difference, right? If I find out that instead of it being $5 million over the last 12 months, it's $5 million and $55,000 over the last 12 months, that's kind of immaterial, right? And so you go as a buyer, you go through this process of sort of saying, all right, do I like this business? Am I excited about this business? Do I think I can be a good owner of this business and develop this business, make this business more valuable? Do I have a good plan? Do I have confidence in an ability to make this business more valuable? And that is the point at which you're typically being asked either by the business owner or by an intermediary to submit a bid or to say, thank you, but I've spent some time with the owner and I've looked at the information both before and after the NDA. And I just don't think that this is you know, something that I want to, to submit a bid on. So you once you sign that NDA, you basically have a non-disclosure there. What happens in scenarios where you're buying, you're you're out to buy an HVAC business, which effectively is almost a commodity business. You know, the the HVAC service providers, they all compete in the same industry for practically the same customers. And you have a bid out for one, you sign an NDA, but then you don't go forward with that one, but you fought you you sign an NDA and you acquire the other one. Is there any kind of um strings attached to that? What can you be inhibited in signing these NDAs? Yeah. I mean, every NDA in theory is, you know, has the ability to be different from others. You know, they, NDAs are legally binding contracts. So whatever you're signing in an NDA, you should understand. Some NDAs have a set of terms that many in the market would consider to be reasonable. And many NDAs have you know uh, obligations that the market doesn't consider to be reasonable at all, and so you shouldn't just flippantly sign legally binding agreements like an NDA or, or any other legally binding agreement. In the case of you buying an, another business, right, you're probably fine to buy some other business that's an HVAC business. I think what's most important to look at in that case is let's say you meet an HVAC business that's for sale, you decide not to buy it. And as part of that process, you meet the head of sales. 
And then you go and buy a different HVAC business and the other HVAC business has a really crappy head of sales. And so you pick up the phone and you call the head of sales at the first HVAC business that you didn't acquire and you say, hey, why don't you come and work for us over here? Right? There's probably a set of terms in that first NDA for that first HVAC business that preclude you within a certain period of time from actively soliciting talent from that business. So if you, you know, if that first NDA has some sort of non-solicited talent, you go and pick up the phone and you call that head of sales and he leaves and goes and works for the business that you just acquired, you would have a very credible lawsuit potentially on your hands. Yeah, that's a prime example of a breach there, yeah. Yeah, so there, there are examples like that. You may, you may get access to a customer list after you have signed the NDA. The customer list might be named. You may go and acquire a competitive HVAC person and say, I still have that old customer list and I know exactly what they're paying and charging. All right, I'm going to pick up the phone. I'm going to call all those customers and I'm going to, uh, to offer you know, 10% less in terms of our you know, annual you know, maintenance service agreement, right? That is very potentially a breach, right? You're using the confidential information that was given to you exclusively within the context of you contemplating the acquisition of that business. And then you're using that information that you got in a completely different context, which is the operation of a distinct and separate business that you now own, right? That would be a very material breach of many NDAs. Not all NDAs, but some NDAs. So the, um, the, the takeaway I'm, I'm taking from this is that as you go through the, dil- the diligence process, you should be more and more considerate of the the depth of information you're taking in, especially if you're starting to see red flags early on. Because if you capture that information, you take it in, and you, now you have a customer list with pricing and all the names and all the details there, you, you've now exposed yourself to information that, that could be construed as you have competitive information and could be used to your advantage in the future. So being careful the deeper you get into diligence considering where you're at and in the consideration process. Yeah. And that, you know, just to be clear, I mean, that's definitely true for the buyer. It's also very true for the seller. The seller should be very careful about what information they share without the protections of a legal agreement, right? If you're a seller and you say, my business does X in revenue and Y in profit, and here's a list of my customers and here's how much they charge. And you know, here's my key management team and here's who we'd have a real problem if they left the company, you know, and you do that without the protections of, a, of an NDA, you know, you're, you're obviously, you're just creating a lot of risk for yourself as a seller. So there's risk for buyers and there's obligations for buyers and there's, there's risk for sellers. And it gets back to your point of, you know, who can you trust, right? Mm. And who has a good reputation? Because that, that ultimately cannot be something that you perfectly contract for with legal, you know, legal agreements. There's a certain amount of information that you learn in every deal process that is going to stay with you as a buyer of businesses. And it's going to inform the way you look at and think about subsequent deals. And there's nothing that a seller can do to prevent you from doing that. But there are certain specific transgressions, you know, that can be proven in a court of law. And those are the ones that you need to be very focused on honoring as a buyer. 
Excellent. Okay, so where we left off before I took us down a path of more questions was going through the due diligence process. And now I would imagine that you would be approaching a closing date or do you set a closing date and what is the timeline for that? And what are the next steps from there? So when you submit a bid on a business, that bid typically is captured in the form of a written agreement. It's often referred to as a letter of intent. And ultimately, a seller will ask for letters of intent or some substantial equivalent to that from any buyers that they're you know, in a discussion with. And if the buyers say, I'm passing, then so be it. But if you have multiple buyers who have submitted a letter of intent, in the letter of intent, it will typically spell out the amount of time that the buyer wants to be able to do the due diligence to in fact confirm that all of the representations and all of the information that you as a seller have put out there are in fact true, as well as to uncover more information that hasn't been, you know, sort of represented or surfaced yet. And you as the seller ultimately are in a position to either sign that letter of intent or not sign that letter of intent. Usually when you're buying small businesses, medium-sized businesses, you have as part of that letter of intent, you as the buyer have a certain period of exclusivity where the seller is no longer allowed to talk with other buyers. In other words, once the seller signs that agreement and you as the buyer sign that agreement, the seller cannot go out into the market and solicit other bids from other buyers. So now the seller is kind of engaged to be married to you and you typically have, and again, this is all set in the open market, Corey. There's no, there's no iron laws of how to do this, but typically you have somewhere between 60 and 180, 120 days, sorry, not 180, 60 and 120 days to do all the due diligence and to consummate the transaction. You do not set a closing date when you are signing the LOI. You're basically going to close at some point within that period of time. Now, Mm -hmm. in some cases, that period of time can lapse and the buyer and the seller are 100% engaged and they want to continue to move forward towards a close. And so the buyer and the seller will ink an extension of the agreement that gives the buyer and the seller another 15 days or another 30 days. In some cases, the LOI gives you 90 days and then gives the buyer the unilateral right to extend for a final 30 days just to sort of get it all the way across the the finish line. Mm -hmm. So there's different ways that they get structured. But usually what we see, at least the data we have on Axial, is that it usually takes somewhere between 90 and 130 days to close a small business transaction. From the time you sign an LOI to the time you have signed the purchase agreement and the wires have cleared. Somewhere between 90 and 130 days. Yeah. That's that's because uh, there's a lot of work to do. These are not big businesses with huge audited financials. They don't have big CFO teams that can turn around information requests quickly. So it takes a while to actually pull together the information that provides the buyer with the confidence that the business is in fact in the condition that it's being presented by by the seller. Yeah. You asked a couple of things about what can the buyer do, you know, to 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 make sure that you know they are in fact buying what they think they're buying. Right. So they can commission what's called a quality of earnings study, um, hmm. or they can do it, or they can do it themselves. A quality of earnings study 
is a process typically executed by an analytical accounting or financial analysis firm or consultant where they go in and they get access to the financial information of the business and they piece together the financial statements kind of brick by brick and make sure that the financial statements that have been consolidated by the business owner are in fact representative of the true sort of movement of money in and out of the business. So that can take easily a month. That firm typically needs to have access to your bank statements or your QuickBooks account or a you know, a, another financial accounting and, and sort of uh, financial software package, but they essentially go in and, you know, it's a, it's a really invasive process. Yeah. Um, it's uh well, another question I had here was what would a buyer do if they didn't have access to audited financials? Because that's a, that's an expensive proposition for a small business to have. And it sounds like part of the due diligence you can do is this quality of earnings, which is Sounds yeah. next to an audit is is you know a very close kind of comparison to prove out the the ins and outs of cash. Yeah, so I mean, even if you have audited financials, if you're a small business, you probably don't have audited financials from you know one of the big four accounting firms. And so, it may be that you have audited financials, but you know the audit is not worth a whole lot in the eyes of the buyer because it's some local accountant who's you know, giving it a, a rubber stamp and it doesn't necessarily mean anything to the buyer. So the quality, mm. of, the quality of earnings report is typically something that really helps the buyer get comfortable that when you say your business has 10 million in revenue and 2 million of EBITDA or pre, you know, pre-tax you know, profit, that that really is correct. That really is, you know, very accurate, not necessarily perfect accurate to the penny, but but very, very close to being perfectly accurate. So that's that's one thing you do as a buyer. There are different kinds of due diligence. So there's financial due diligence, there's legal due diligence, uh, there's accounting due diligence, there is cyber and information technology due diligence, you know, which inspects if you are a technology company or you use software or IT systems. What is the condition of those systems? How do you maintain those systems? There's information security due diligence. There's all these different, you know, sort of modules and categories of diligence that a buyer is is going through to really get an understanding for how have you run this business? How well protected is the business from threats, legal, business, you know, nefarious cyber threats, et cetera? And is there anything that, you know, that I need to know? Is there taxes that haven't been paid? Are you doing business in a jurisdiction where you haven't registered? I mean, there's just so many things that an owner of a business, a new buyer of a business, they're assuming all of those risks when they buy your business. And so they really, you know, they typically want to go through a really careful process. Um, And so there are these big due diligence checklists and, you know, they kind of methodically go through those checklists and sometimes they're doing the checklist themselves and sometimes they're hiring third-party consultants to expedite the process uh, on their behalf. You know, um, I, I really appreciate that when you look at the buying process and as you're you're communicating here, the biggest part of that buying process and the most important, as I understand, is due diligence. I mean, that's where that's you can't leave any any stone unturned. Yeah. I mean, you know, in some ways, like it's the most important. And I'd say the other thing is, you know, 
you know, your assessment of, of the business owner, right? Like what is your assessment of that business owner's integrity? Uh, because, you know, small business, you're going to find things in, in due diligence that, that, you know, that aren't ideal, right? You're going to find some 401k filing that they forgot to file. It's not a big deal, right? Yeah. You know, if you catch it, great. And you help them figure it out and you move on. It's not a material, you know, it's not some material issue, right? I think the things that you're trying to make sure are okay is that, you know, that there isn't something material that is being withheld from you. And so you're trying to, to, to not only have a really thorough due diligence process that helps surface all of that stuff, and that also puts you in the right position to operate the business with eyes wide open uh, once you've closed the transaction. But I think the other thing that you're trying to really assess as part of the due diligence process is how is this business owner responding to my due diligence? Hmm. Are they being responsive? Are they turning things around quickly? Are they being forthcoming? Or are they always giving me kind of like 80% of what I requested, but it always seems like they're, there's something that they're still hiding, right? You're, you're really yeah. trying to, as a buyer, you're, you're really trying to not only get good, you know, actionable information through the diligence process, but you're trying to get a sense for how is this business owner responding to this diligence? How are they behaving? You know, just what, what clues about the integrity of the business owner, the way in which the business owner has run this business, can you gather through the diligence process, right? It's it's a very, very arduous process for a business owner. And so it gives you the opportunity as a buyer to see how patient are they, how well organized are they, how many uh, things have they, you know, how well have they managed their business prior to dealing with all of this scrutiny? Do they continue to be, you know, transparent and forthcoming as part of the process? You get all of this information, but you also get a lot of visibility, behavioral information on, you know, the business owner and the team that they've built. So you're just you're 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 in learning mode as a buyer in lots of different ways and from a variety of different standpoints. It's yeah. not just getting a whole bunch of financial information. You're you're learning a lot about the business and the way the business has been run, and uh, and that can be very very helpful if you're you know getting ready to run the business yourself. What I hear there is there's a certainly a, a quantitative component, and that's looking at financials and so on. But there is the qualitative aspects and and just getting that you know that feeling for for how the buyer or how the seller is is uh, conducting themselves, especially as you say during a a really kind of invasive or uh, a difficult time for them, right? Like it's not uh, it's not easy to sell a business. It's the, like the next- how we- no, it's like hell week for the you know for the SEAL teams, right? There you, know you go. I mean? There you go. The it's, the next question, I, I've got a couple of questions here, and I want to end on talking structure and things like earnouts. But before I ask that, what about independent business valuations? Are they useful and how are they or how are they not useful? Yeah, so you know, sometimes you get these independent business valuations in the context of a fairness opinion. And a fairness opinion is something that is used to make sure that a company, typically a public company, is being purchased within a reasonable range of value. And it's something that a board of directors will do in order to cover their ass 
or it's something that might be done if there's a potential conflict of interest between the buyer and the seller. And so you bring in a third-party fairness opinion just to make sure that the business is trading within a reasonable range of value. Most of the time, those fairness opinions really aren't necessary or are not sort of part of the standard process for a small privately held business. And so if you get an independent valuation done on a small business, it's probably a waste of time because your business, the value of your business is ultimately set by the market of buyers who you are able to credibly attract and engage in the context of buying your business, right? And so if you're not able to attract a willing and able set of buyers to evaluate your business, to spend their scarce time and their scarce capital on your business, if you're not able to do that, then your business actually has no no real value because you you can't get anybody to spend time and, and money focusing on buying it. And so Mm -hmm. it may be that you can commission a third party to say, oh, your business, you know, has the following financials and and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, when you run a private, small or midsize business, your business's value, its, its liquid value is very materially impacted by whether or not you as the seller can orchestrate the attention of a series of buyers to compete for that asset and ultimately for them to deliver bids on the business. And wherever those bids land, however many bids you get and the price of those bids and the terms of those bids or the absence of any bids at all, I mean, that really ultimately is the value of your business at that particular moment in time. And so, you know, it's unusual that a professional buyer of a business is going to be materially influenced by some, you know, third-party independent valuation report that, you know, that you got from either, you know, a good firm or an independent, they just, it's up to them to just walk away from the deal and say, you know, there's other businesses that are more interesting for me right now. And so I'm going to spend my time and spend my scarce capital evaluating those opportunities. So So that's, that's actually a really interesting point. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't expect your response there. So I appreciate that. And it reminds me that one buyer does not make a market. So if you've got a seller and they can only attract one buyer who say, I'm willing to put this, that is not a market saying, this is what we value you at. What are, if I was to be, if I was to be buying a business, whether I'm there with other potential buyers, or it's just me saying, I see an opportunity here in, in purchasing from that seller. Where do you go with rules of thumb for valuing a company? Is it is it a multiple of earnings, a multiple of profits? And are there some parameters that you should be working in when looking at these smaller businesses, kind of sub five or 10 million in revenue? Yeah, I mean, you know, the typical multiple valuation approach for small profitable businesses is a multiple of earnings or some measure of the business's core operating earnings. There are cases where the business may not be generating earnings and there the buyer may have to arrive at a multiple that is based upon, you know, some other some other metric. Often if businesses are not generating earnings, it might be because they're growing the top line quite quickly. And so because there are no earnings, you can't really arrive at an earnings-based multiple. So you may arrive at a revenue-based multiple. 
I think at the end of the day, the way to think about, you know, the, the valuation of a, of a, of equity in a business, it's competing against all of the other businesses that that buyer could potentially go and, and put their capital into, right? So if you're a buyer, if you have a million dollars to spend, you can go and put it in a savings account and you can earn one or 2% at the bank, or you can go and buy US treasuries, or you can go and buy Exxon Mobil bonds or Berkshire Hathaway bonds. And all of these different instruments give you a certain return on your capital. And the reason that you would go and put your money in a small business that is not liquid, that doesn't trade on a stock exchange, the only reason that you would go and do that is because you thought that you could earn a premium return on your capital by placing it there. And so if you're paying such a high price for those earnings that you can't earn an attractive annual return on your capital, why bother buying an illiquid small business with your million dollars of capital? Just go put it in Google or Exxon bonds or something that's easy and simple and liquid. And if you change your mind, you know, you can change your mind and you don't have some illiquid asset, you know, sitting, you know, on your balance sheet. And so sellers have to really understand this, right? Like their business and their equity, it has to be, valued in such a way that the buyer has a huge incentive to put their capital there versus putting their capital in much, much easier, more transparent, more liquid alternatives. And that really is the price setting mechanism for, you know, for, for all assets, right? And so when you're buying a business for five times earnings or six times earnings, let's say you buy a business for five times earnings. Well, if you buy a business for five times earnings, what that essentially means is you're getting a 20% return on your capital every year, right? Yep. You know, in five years, you would get all of your capital back. Yeah. If you, if you took 100% of the earnings of that business, you'd get 100% of your capital back. And so if you can go out into the market and buy Google stock, because you know it's going to go up 20% over the next five years, but you would just probably go do that instead. Right. And so it's in that context that a seller of a business is negotiating with a buyer of a business. The buyer has to have a reason to invest because the rate at which their capital can compound cannot be easily arrived at in, you know, in, in some other way. And well, what I like that, is that I that's think that's really such going a... on. You know, a lot of people don't really realize that, but that's actually what's happening. And so there are all these data sets out there, you know, HVAC businesses trade at four earning, four times earnings or six times earnings, or if they are have this much size, but really at the end of the day, the buyer has to say, my equity that I'm investing to own this business is capable of compounding at a rate that is so attractive and has a certain level of predictability to its compounding that I wouldn't want to put this capital anywhere else. I want to put it here. And that's really what the seller is trying to persuade the buyer is the opportunity, right? It's over the next five years, if you do X, Y, and Z with the business that I'm selling to you and I stay involved or you run the business, you can compound capital more quickly than you could ever compound capital by investing in, you know, a bunch of stocks and bonds in the stock market. And it's got to be, it's got to be a really exciting opportunity like that. Otherwise, why bother? 
Yeah. I just, I wanted to say there that there, there can be, to your point, there can be so many data sets about this industry and this size and that and that and on and on and on. Whereas if you just draw it back to something so easy and say, well, if I was to put my capital here somewhere relatively safe, liquid, transparent, then I would get this return. Would I rather put it there or into this small business? What kind of return would I get? And use that as your as your comparison than worrying about all the metrics and all the, the rules of thumb that are out there. That's right. Yeah. Now, Peter, I, I we we've just like blazed through this this hour here. Let's end with a final question when it comes to buying a company uh, between buyer and seller, the discussion of the price were uh, an all cash deal versus something that would be a form of an earnout or some form of of interestingly structured deal what what can you say about the the, the end structuring when you're signing the papers money's going to be transferred things like earnouts what should we know well i think the less earnout oriented structure that exists in a deal <laughs> the better for both sides. You know, it just, the future is uncertain. You know, none of us knew COVID was going to happen. None of us knew that, you know, Wall Street was going to melt down in 2008. None of us knew the internet was going to crash in 2000, you know, there, and, and so all these things, wh- whenever you, you know, whenever you create an earnout where you say, all right, my business is worth 15 million, but you're going to give me 10 million at closing and the next 5 million has, you know, I'm going to get the next 5 million only if, you know, X, Y, and Z happen. There's always complexity that, you know, arises in the future that can sort of create a challenge around, well, what's the metric and how are you defining the metric? And, you know, that's why earnouts always can lead to, to tricky lawsuits. So I think from a buyer's perspective and a seller's perspective, earnouts always have a good intention, which is how do we get this deal done in a way that you feel good about and that I feel good about where we're sharing some risk? So I think, you know, if you want to put 10, 15% of the total value of a deal into an earnout, you know, you're probably fine. I mean, look, you make your own decisions. I'm not, you know, here to give advice, but I think 10, 15% of the total price of the deal, not a huge, huge amount at risk. You start to put more than 20% of the deal into an earnout structure, and you're starting to raise the temperature in the in in the room, in, in the future room. And so I think, you know, the best way for a business owner to minimize the desire for a buyer to request that an earnout be part of the structure is to maximize the earnings predictability of the business before they try and sell it. If your business predictably generates 5% growth in earnings every year, and you can show a buyer that you've done that for five years, you did it through the last recession, you did it through COVID, you did it through this, then you have a very strong case to say, listen, this business produces 5% earnings growth with a 20% EBIT margin every year, game, set, match. You've seen it. Everyone else has seen it. And so, you know, the business is worth $25 million. And that's what you're going to pay me at close game, set, match. And if you're not going to do it, there's another buyer who will, right? The more predictable your business is, and the more you can show the predictability of your business to a buyer, the, the less reason they, the, the less legs they have to stand on in terms of insisting on an earnout. 
And usually they will. Usually if you can get a set of credible, high quality buyers to the table that are genuinely engaged in your business and you negotiate fairly and tenaciously with them and you show them this predictability, well, you know, usually you're going to get what you deserve. But if your business is all over the place and, you know, you've got one customer that's worth 30% of your revenue and one year they cancel a couple of orders and the next year they have quintuple the orders and then they do nothing for a year. That's a lot of volatility in your business, right? And a buyer is going to look at that as part of the due diligence process and say, listen, last year your business earned $2 million. The year before your business earned a half a million dollars. The year before it, a million. The year before that, three million. It's choppy. And when I buy your business as a buyer, I'm buying the future. I'm not buying the past. But you know your past, if it's any, you know if it's any indication of the future, like it's choppy. So I need some protection in case these customers change their mind, or you know the predictability of the business continues to be really volatile. So earnouts are usually inversely correlated with the predictability of a business. And my advice to a seller is. Do everything you can to maximize the predictability of the way your business generates revenue and generates earnings. That will put uh, buyers in a much weaker position to insist upon an earnout. And in general, buyers will reward you for having created a more predictable business. But you know they can be helpful. But the more that gets structured into an earnout, the more you're basically just delaying the argument until some future point in time. And now in the future, instead of it being an argument, it's, you know, it's, it's usually kind of an argument that ends in, you know, a potential lawsuit. And you know, in, in the lawyers winning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The yeah. lawyers get your earn out, not you. Yeah. <laughs> well, Peter, I really, I like that. I like all the tips you've thrown at us here and, and all the information. What I want to say, I want to wrap up the episode, but for, for the listeners, everybody's got to go to the axial.net website. Uh, your your website, Peter, because you have put so much energy into the tools and guides and resources that you have there. I think it's awesome, and I can actually speak. Um, I'll speak on behalf of of one our li- one of our listeners and somebody I know who's a great entrepreneur. They've spent time on your site and are just thrilled with what is there. So yeah, huge kudos to you, man. Any final thoughts you have as we wrap up the episode here? Look, I would just say, you know, selling a business and buying a business is a professional endeavor. You should not enter into it lightly. It's not an e-commerce transaction. You're not buying a pair of sneakers. And, you know, it might sound fun or cool or, you know, like a lucrative thing to do, but it's like anything else in life. You know, it's hard to get good at it and the stakes are high and take your time. That's awesome, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's great to be with you, Corey. Thanks for the invitation and thanks for the kind words on uh, all the resources and tools we put together. And we'll, we'll keep do, doing more of that for sure. That's what we're here for. Right on. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Peter. You bet. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.